0: So in today's episode, ladies, we have Natalie Kalati. She's a real estate tax strategist. And we cover so many bases with her today, which I think I really appreciated a lot on this episode. The first thing we talked about that you'll get a lot from was how she fixed and flipped mobile homes. And she talks a little bit about a couple of her, you know, recent deals and how she got in, how she found them and how she made it all work and the numbers that are associated with really flipping mobile homes. So I think you'll really appreciate that, that conversation. And just some tips she, she shares, even just how to source them and how to really get into that, that particular niche, which is a, an amazing niche for a lot of people. And it may not be the most uh, popular right now, but it's increasingly popular. And it's something that a lot of, a lot of investors should, should definitely consider if it aligns with your goals. Second thing we got into that we got into a lot of depth around was common tax mistakes. And uh, we're in, the, we're in the, 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 the throes of tax season here so we talked about common mistakes. We also went through a number of questions from our, our investor Facebook community, from, uh, from LLCs to corporations to S-Corps. Um, and although she's not an attorney, we covered it from a, uh, a tax liability perspective. We also got into 1099s, when you should issue 1099s, and a bunch of other things. We probably went through like six questions with her. So it's a chock full episode and I hope you enjoy uh, today and would love to hear your feedback as always. Investors, as we all know, financing deals in today's market can be a bit challenging at times. If you're looking at funding your next real estate transaction, we are so excited to introduce to you Fund That Flip. Fund That Flip is a lending partner dedicated to grow your real estate investment portfolio. They specialize in fix and flip, buy and hold, new construction, and cash out refi for one to four units. Ladies, we have known the founder, Matt, and his team for many years now, and we can assure you that their support goes beyond just lending money. They become a true partner. So if you're looking for great terms and reliable service, check out fund.flip.com slash her. Welcome back, ladies. This is Liz on the Real Estate Invest Her Show. We have Natalie Calati on the show today. Natalie, thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. So excited to jump into a very hot topic around tax and all the really, um, not the most exciting, but really, really important stuff, right? Of real estate investing. Yeah. jump into in a moment. And uh, I wanted just to make mention, um, missing my cohort today, uh, Andressa, but um, she's here in spirit and I will... um, channel her inner questions. So, you know, I'm sure she's somewhere important, which she is, and I will channel her questions that she likes to ask. So, um, but just welcome back. Welcome back to our podcast. We are all about helping women create a financially free and balanced life. That is our mission. That is what we're up to with our Facebook community and our meetups. We have 23 meetups around the country and growing and all the neat things we're doing. We're we're, we're you know, really up to um, creating a safe space for women, so thanks for being on our show again, Natalie, and thanks for all the women listening We're really, really fortunate so um, before we get into this topic of of some tax and you invest in mobile home parks, I'm so excited to talk to you about that too something I've always been intrigued by um, and before we go there, I want to make mention of something um, you know before we get into our, our kind of our topic, um, something that my husband's been just left this morning to travel for five days.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I have two little ones. So, you know, we know how that goes when you're kind of like <laughs> left, right, Natalie, to do everything. Man you know? the helm. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, just the balancing. And this, this show is more than just becoming financially free, but doing it in a way that- you don't go out of your mind as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, I woke up and I was like, the the overwhelm already set in. You know, he left like four a.m. He woke me up and he's like, I lost my keys. I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> then he found them and I'm like, thanks for waking me up. But you know, what kind of set in is something a tool that I learned a long time ago called um, CPR. And I wanted just to share this with the ladies listening. It's called basically you're creating a context, a purpose, and then results when you're moving into something that could be a challenge, an event or even a meeting. It could, it's actually a powerful tool used for anything. But I'm like, I need a context for the next five days. So when I get overwhelmed and I'm feeling a little down or just feeling stretched, I need something like almost like a bumper sticker to bring me back. Call it an affirmation, call it what you want. But in essence, something to kind of have a theme so I can kind of move through these five days really powerfully. So I woke up and I did some journaling and I wrote down just like, I am peace. I'm peace and I'm calm, and I'm productive, and 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 just holding those three things in the next five days, I think will be helpful. I don't, I mean, I already like screamed at my kid this morning already. So I mean, you know, I'm not going to be peaceful 24 hours a day, (laughs) because my son was playing in his room and like we got to go to the bus. But but really, just being able to um, hold that, and I and I just encourage the woman listening, when you're moving into something that may not be just by default a way of being. Create something for yourself, whether that's call it an affirmation, but I like calling it a context because it's almost like a bumper sticker. How do you want to be going through this situation, going through this event? So I just wanted to offer that to the women listening, and and it's something that I'm I I wrote down and I'm put it on a post-it note and I'm like that's my focus because I'm gonna I'm gonna hold that so I don't go nutty. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Or or at least eighty to ninety percent of the time, right? So without further ado, um, Natalie, love to ask the ladies that we interview um, a, a little more about your story and uh, what propelled you to get involved in real estate investing. I know you're, you're a tax strategist and all that good stuff, but you're also yep. an investor. So what propelled you to uh, to jump into this?
1: Yeah, for me, it was something I always knew I wanted to do, and for the longest time, I thought you just had to get a good job, save a bunch of money, and then you could buy one house at a time. And that was the only option. Like I was just sure that was it. That's all your parents talk about. That's kind Mm -hmm. of all you know. Um, And then right out of college was one of those, I don't recommend this, but it's what I did, but one of those like weekend guru seminars came through. Um, And I didn't, I, I won't say I didn't learn a ton from it. I learned from it, but it was very kind of salesy obviously and fluffed up and a little more unrealistic than the real world. But that is what sort of opened my eyes to this being something you can do in more creative ways. That's what mm-hmm. led me to podcasts and to you know, online communities and kind of learning all the different ways to invest. And that's what actually led me into mobile homes. So I started off with fixing and flipping mobile homes. Um, And it was just because I had paid for this education. What they were teaching didn't work in the market I was in, but I'm a big fan of kind of the blue ocean strategy. If sharks are all feeding in one place and the ocean's red there, you need to find blue ocean. So if everyone's doing one thing, find something else that works for you. Mm. So for me, that was, that was mobile homes. There was no competition for it. It's kind of ignored. It's not like sexy high end flips, but it's a great way to get started in real estate and kind of get your feet wet. And so that's what sort of pulled me into it. And after that worked out, it was like, oh, well, you can do this. You can kind of apply what you learned to bigger projects and just kind of roll forward from there.
0: I love that. So, so walk me through that a little bit. Cause we're, I mean, I'm familiar with fix and flips in the traditional mm-hmm. sense. Um, probably have done a couple dozen, you know, in my, in my tenure. Um, it's not been the hugest part of our business, my husband and I's business, but we've done them. And and Andresa, that's really how on justice started, and I started partnering. Is that mm-hmm. we partnered on a number of flips together. But walk me through the flipping, <laughs> fixing, and flipping of the mobile home, because I'm really when I think of mobile yeah. homes, I think of like buy and hold. I don't think it's actually a flipping um, strategy. So just walk me through that a little bit, if you yeah, it's
1: kind of interesting. So for a while, it was big, sort of in the '80s. There was this thing called Lonnie deals. Um, it doesn't work as well as it used to in that sense. So if you come across books or if you look into this and you see Lonnie deals, that was basically where you'd flip them and sell them owner financed. Lonnie, um, like L-A-W-N-I-N-G? Uh, L-O-N-N-I-E. L-O-N-N-I-E. Oh, okay. The name, yeah. Oh, Lonnie, um, got it, the name. Got it, got it, got it. Yep, yep. And um, But then with Dodd-Frank and some kind of financing restrictions, that structure sort of, you've got to be more cautious now because you can't charge a crazy interest rate reselling it, and so you'd have to spread your deal out longer to make the monthly payments kind of legal mm-hmm. um so that's a lot of what you'll see and so we didn't even know about that at the time we were just we went my best friend and i went to that weekend course we tried to wholesale which is what everyone i think tries to start with and we got our butts handed to us and we were like okay well we got to do something and so we were just sort of thinking through it and we were like well what is some like what's sort of another way we were just kind of brainstorming or writing everything out on a board and we finally i was like what about mobile homes like no one looks at them you see listings for them a lot so with mobile homes they're titled more like a car. Um, often for people, they inherit them if they're in a 55 and over park. So now they just have this asset that is costing them money each month. Cause you pay the lot rent that you're renting the space it's in. Mm-hmm. They can't live in it. And they're hard to sell because a lot of agents don't like listing them because the commissions are small because they're such a low priced house. Mm. So what we started was we were like, okay, well, we're just going to try to buy one and see, we're just going to try, like, let's just see what happens. Um, and the first one we got, we ended up buying off MLS. It was listed for like $29,000. It was in a suburb of Seattle in a really nice park where it was like a gated community, swimming pool, tennis court. So the monthly rent they were paying was like $800 just to have this mobile home sit vacant. Hmm. And so they were ready to get rid of it. And so I had just listed an ad online that was like, I buy mobile homes, any condition call me. And the guy called and sent me the listing and I was like, oh no, this isn't what I'm looking for. Like this one's nice. It's listed. Like I'm looking for $2,000, homes, <laughs> you know? And I was like, you know, that's not really, I don't think I can do anything with this. Call me when you're at your last resort. Mm-hmm. And he was like, we're there, <laughs> make me an offer. And so I sort of thought about it. And I remember sitting on my like 10 minute break at lunch, I'm in my like little cubicle <laughs> at work. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I have no idea what mobile homes are worth. Like I just started. And I was like, okay, uh, $6,000. I hear him put the phone down and he's talking to his wife and he comes back and he's like, my wife said to ask for eight. And I was like, okay, I'll do eight. If I can do half now and half in 45 days when it sells. And he puts the phone down. I hear him talking to the wife again, comes back. My wife says, we'll take six. (laughs) So I was like, okay. So I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what, but I figured for less than I paid for my car, I would be able to do something. Mm. So we went in, we, it was already in good shape. It was just kind of outdated. So it was just cosmetic updates, paint fixtures, little things. Um, we did that, we relisted it and we got that sold within 45 days. Actually, it was just over a month that it was under contract. Um, and we turned around and sold that one for right around 20 grand and we had only put in $1,500. It was just, like I said, cosmetic. So, um, that's kind of what started us. So it was sort of this Like they're not the huge margin you'll get on a normal home, but your risk is low. Your time is low and finding them is so much easier because most people are just trying to get rid of them (laughs) by that point. Mm. They are not, it's not like a house where you can, people have this huge value attached to it. Um, For a lot of people, it was kind of a stepping stone or somewhere their parents lived and now they moved them into their house or, so it's often kind of an extra, just an extra expense for people. So they're easy to find deals on them
0: you can get creative with them too. This is really fascinating. So I, I'm, I have like so many questions to ask you. So, <laughs> so you have like the, you go in and you, so in this particular park, is there like, just like a neighborhood? I think I'm thinking of a neighborhood, yeah, right? Yeah. You got the high end, you got the first time home buyers, you get the luxury homes, right? Everywhere in between. And a lot of people have the philosophy of creating flips, flipping homes in, in obviously neighborhoods that are um, there's more buyers, right? The, the luxury is a niche, but you know that's probably sometimes yeah. a tougher spot to start with. Yep. So then I'm then my next thought is as as I'm relating it to what you're telling me is, um, what's the what's the high end? Does it have to do with the mobile home park itself, or is it, you know, in terms of like X dollars to X dollars? Because you said, you know, six six K was what average? Was that low? Was that high? Does it all have to do with the mobile home park, or is it like? Well, any mobile home park you go to, it's going to be probably this.
1: Um, It's going to vary based on where you're located and the park. So like at that time I was in Seattle. So where the average home costs $700,000, if someone's looking to retire and they're like, oh, I can just pay 800 bucks a month and buy this for 20 grand. Like it's a perfect retirement option. Um, A lot of kind of starter families, it's great for them because it gives them like your rent or you're owning something for less than you would pay for rent in that area. And when you're done and you move out, if the mobile home was kept in good shape, you can probably sell it for what you bought it for. Mm. So it gives kind of people a great stepping stone, but it's super dependent on the park. Like this park, like I said, it was just like a regular neighborhood, like a suburban neighborhood. It's just that instead of stick built houses, they were all double wide manufactured homes. Yeah. But yeah, the neighborhood itself was beautiful. Like I said, swimming pool, tennis courts, (laughs) activity center. So it was really kind of a nice community just happened to be manufactured homes.
0: Yeah. So then so then where did you go from there? You did this deal, you made what? 14 in that ballpark. I don't know about whole yep. I, I guess you have holding costs just like a flip. Yeah, but this is like a sh- this is yeah, a short month. yeah, mm-hmm. one month, that's not, you know, not I'm sure yep. not killing the bank there. Um, so yeah, then then you moved to what? Did you then kind of source that you know that particular park as like, wow, this is a a great park for me to focus on or did you look for other ones? So or?
1: we looked elsewhere cuz interesting enough, I'd say the the park should be your greatest research point if you're looking at this so that park was beautiful but it was 55 and older so I was allowed to own it but I couldn't stay in it there's like weird covenants basically if you're going to own a mobile home in a 55 and over park and be under 55 so I couldn't even like stay the night there if I was working on it all weekend I had to drive back down Um, but I realized the hardest part about selling it was the higher cost of, of lot rent for Some people, like that value wasn't there for everyone. Some people didn't care about a pool. So that was sort of the biggest obstacle we faced. So the next deal we got, I love this deal. Um, The next mobile home I bought, I got from, so you can set up on Craigslist an RSS feed search. So you get Mm. alerts whenever a search on Craigslist matches your search parameters. So you'll get an email. Mm. And so I had one set up for mobile homes under, I think, $10,000, and I get an alert, and it's listed for free. And I was like, "Well, this can't be right. Like, they probably need it moved. There's something." And no, it was um, it was a single wide mobile home in pretty rough shape, but livable um, in a really nice area. This park was different. It was a small park, but think more like a like a campground, like wooded. Okay. It didn't seem like a community. It was just sort of beautiful, right? Backed sure. up to a national park, but four hundred dollars a month for the spot. So she had it listed for free. It was her mom's house and her mom hadn't kind of taken care of it. She'd moved her mom in with her and she just wanted to get rid of it. To her, it was like more work to try to fix it up, to list it to sell. She just wanted to be done and gone and not pay $400 a month. So I went out and looked at it and I was like, this isn't, that, I mean, it's bad, but it's not that bad, right? Yeah. And so I ended up just giving her fifty dollars to make it a legal legal contract. And so the next one I bought, I literally paid fifty dollars for. And so <laughs> I was like, people love that because they're like, you paid like my purse costs more than that. Yeah, like, right. My parents,
0: my sneakers actually cost. <laughs> yeah. I just bought sneakers yesterday. They were fifty five dollars. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on that one, I was like, well, heck, even if it needs a bunch of work, I should be able to make money on this. It was fifty dollars and that one we hired a contractor oh actually this is my favorite part of it so we bought it that same like the day we bought it signed the contracts i then put my sign in the window that it was for sale by owner literally 2 hours later i got a phone call from someone who was like i've been trying to move to this area my daughter and grandkids live out here i love this park can i buy your mobile home what is it going to cost and i'm like i don't know i don't even know like we've only owned it for two hours. I don't even know the scope of renovations, what it's going to cost And I paid 50 bucks for it. <laughs> yeah, so I'm like, okay, just come up with something. And I was like, uh, $18,000 and it'll be fixed up. And she's like, perfect, here you go. Like signed a contract, put down a earnest money like she was in. So now we had 30 days to do the project because it was sold. Like we had pre-sold this mobile home. We brought on a contractor. He was a disaster. We had to fire him halfway through, lost $1,500 worth of work. Um, And then we were like, well, we just need to do this. So my best friend and I, every day after work, went down there. That was the home we learned to do things on between Hmm. YouTube and everything. We did subfloor. We did drywall. We did plumbing. Like that entire mobile home was renovated by two women in their 20s watching YouTube videos. (laughs) That's awesome. It was the best because it was in this, again, a 55 and older park. There'd be all these kind of like old man neighbors who would come over and be like, okay, what are you girls doing over here? You need some help with that? I'm going to go grab you a different saw. Like they were so sweet and so helpful <laughs> and they just thought it was like delightful that young women were in here like working on something and they were yeah. just there to help. So that was the second one, um, bought it for 50 bucks, did all the work ourselves and it was literally sold the day we bought it. So wow. that's mobile homes. There's kind of, they a weird niche, but they're kind of a really untapped area, I think.
0: What's the amount of money? So what what did you end up now? That was that was your sweat equity, right? But if you yep. had if you had um hired a contractor and, and you know did it did it that way, how much would have that been about in terms of a budget, construction budget?
1: So right around five grand, maybe a little less. And so on that one we still ended up paying close to that because we had paid him some and had to redo work Of course. And buy, yeah. But yep, so we were still only about five thousand in total and sold it for eighteen in thirty days. So that's awesome. Yes. Yeah.
0: So what is the what is the square footage of these mobile homes? Like, what's That's the high, like the thing. largest to the smallest?
1: Yeah, small ones tend to be like seven hundred, eight hundred square feet. A single wide okay. is normally one or two bedrooms. And then a double wide, there's even triple wides, but hmm. double wides tend to be like a, a normal three, two, they're maybe fifteen hundred square feet. But the single wide one that last one we did ourselves was really nice because we bought a ton of our supplies on Craigslist. Like our flooring, we did laminate all throughout and we were able to get it super cheap leftovers from someone else's job because we only needed a little bit of it. (laughs) We didn't have a ton of square footage to cover. The living room was only, you know, 150 square feet. So it really let us kind of keep costs down. Um, Mobile homes are weird with sizes. So be careful with that. If anyone goes out and decides to do this, like the doors will be a weird size, vanities, Mm. um, windows aren't standard sizes. So that's kind of your biggest obstacle you might run into, but there's also sort of like thrift stores for mobile home parts, <laughs> like mm. mobile home part junkyards. Um, but you just have to get creative and it's just kind of a cool area. It's a great way to get started and flipping without having to take on so much risk, I think.
0: I was just going to say that, you know, you think about, you know, because we've, we've, we've done cosmetic Flips to like gut renovations, and you know you could be in properties for one hundred and fifty thousand, just mm-hmm. just construction, not even the buy cost, like literally just the construction and, and people yeah. spend more than that that 's not even that the highest, but that um, it 's very common you know to do gut renovations uh, in Philly, and your budget 's a hundred grand yeah, you have to yeah easy and and you know uh, I always say to i always think I think about some of the things we 've done really well with flips and then some of the mistakes we've made. And I think about like mitigating risk, right? Because mm-hmm. then you start to really get in this business and you really just want to mitigate risk. You don't want to necessarily, no one wants to lose money, but especially when you've been doing it, right? You're, you're in something. It's like, this doesn't, we've got to keep mitigating risk. And, and then we got into some condo flips. Mm-hmm. And that was really interesting because that Reduce the space and reduce really what, yeah. what really can, can be that, you know, you're not going to gut, do a gut renovation on a condo. Right. Um, these, these aren't old properties. So that makes me think of different, but, but similar in the sense of mobile homes. Yeah.
1: Oh, it was exactly like similar, like on countertops we used, um, like, I don't know if you've seen these, they're like a countertop refinishing kit. It's almost like a, an epoxy and a paint and you can mm-hmm. do a texture to make it look like stone. Would I do that in a flip that was $200,000? No, but in a mobile home, it was a hundred times better than the green for mica colored yeah. countertops. So, and that cost $40 for the the kit. It did the kitchen and both bathrooms. So like the kind of the expectation of finish in a mobile home is so much lower than if you were doing a full blown house. Yeah. So you can really do just kind of minimal, not, I don't want to say minimal updates, but sort of, you're not going to put granite countertops in it, but you're going to do something like this where it just looks nice. It's functional and someone's going to be happy with it.
0: Absolutely. The, um, what percentage would you say, and this is interesting that you're in a 55 and old, but what is the percentage of like ownership? Do people really want to own their mobile home parks? I'm sorry, not the parks, the, their, their home. Or is it um, there's a rental community, just like a, a residential neighborhood would be? Or is it a different way of approaching that than like a traditional, like, you know, single family neighborhood?
1: Yeah, I see both. But I would say more common is the parks where the, The occupant owns their own home and I think park owners really like that because now you don't have any maintenance and the homeowners really like that because they own something. They can decide how they paint it, what they do, what, so it's kind of a best of both worlds for both, both parties.
0: Okay. Got it. That's great. So then what was your third deal? You know, what, 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 what was after the, the $50 deal?
1: So that is where we stopped. Then I started a tax firm. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs>
1: what are, yeah. what, what I just agree. didn't have time for both. <laughs> I hear you. I love the I love that
0: concept. And I love the idea of, I love what you're saying too. just philosophically of where are people spending their energy and then to say, okay, um, I, I need to go somewhere else. Yeah. That could be geographic. That could be something that is more um, from a niche perspective. I mean, you know, for us, we were looking at prices in the Northeast of, of multifamily. Not only, mm-hmm. not only is multifamily hot, but multifamily is even hotter and more competitive in certain markets. Right. So we kept looking at all these prices and we're like, we, we can't make yeah. this work, right? Yeah. We, you know, and, and we're not just parking money where we're, we raise money. We have partners in these deals. We, we can't justify it to, to right. our partners, so we had a we were kind of forced, in essence, if we wanted to keep with that niche of multifamily, to say where else can we go? So mm-hmm. we just started to get into different geographic markets that were not as competitive. Now they've yeah. gotten be, become more competitive, and that's a good place to be, right? Yeah, you're on the front end. I mean, if 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 you're looking at a market that's on some sort of list that's probably you're probably a little late to the game to the public. yeah yeah oh absolutely you know it's like oh it's on a list and nah, that, that everyone else knows that so it's public now so I always like to say you know yeah I, I love what you're saying of like where is everyone going and then where can I kind of pivot mm-hmm. uh, you know that, that I think that makes a lot of sense especially that and, and also mitigate my risk I mean those numbers yeah. are amazing I love that um, I bet you people do this, I'm sure you can really scale this pretty well.
1: Yeah, Oh, especially if you're at the point where you can have your own contractor, if you do enough of these a month to keep an actual contractor full-time, just doing these little homes for you. Um, I have a, a friend in Seattle and that's what they do. They do these and then they sell them on owner financing because that's another tricky thing is they're hard to get financing for. They're okay. not like a normal mortgage, They're um, they're like a title. So there are some companies that do it, but it's not super, super easy to get. So if you tell someone, hey, you can buy this house. I just need this dollar amount down. And then you pay this dollar amount a month on top of your lot rent and you keep it affordable. They're easy to sell. And then if they decide to not ever kind of, it's like an owner finance deal. So if they never close on it or they don't execute their option or however you have it structured, a lot of the time you end up with the home back. If they're sort of like, ah, this doesn't work for me. Like they've rented it basically for a while. They've sort of paid you for use of it. And then if they decide they don't want to buy it, you get to start over yep but I love that yeah if you can carry the note on them and like I said, you just have to be careful with your interest rates make sure they're not sort of too too high where it's a predatory mm-hmm. lending um, but if you can structure it where it's appropriate then yeah you can you can buy them and sell them all day long
0: I think that's one of the coolest things about real estate that people don't often realize as easily or until you're really in this in this in the throes of it I mean you can own or finance a large multifamily, like an apartment building, you know, like, so, so it's so many creative ways to get things done and to really structure projects and structure a deal. Um, I think that's, I think that's one of the, the best things in this, this process, right? Cause it's really, it's not like a cookie cutter,
1: right? There's no,
0: as long as it's obviously legal, you know, yeah, I'm not yeah. don't do anything <laughs> illegal, but yeah, I love that. I love that concept. Um, what have you found to be really great resources? Women listening are like, I want to learn more about doing mobile homes. You know, any, any particular books you read or anything you'd
1: steer You're them to? Not really. Like it's such a weird thing because you can't just pull comps like on MLS because a lot of them aren't sold through an agent. So I would say your best option is going to parks. Like the more park mm. managers or owners you talk to, because okay. there will be parks that are corporate owned. They've got strict guidelines. Yeah. Then there are parks where... The park owner's super laid back, and they don't care, and they'll call you. Like after we did that last one, um, I actually turned down another deal in that same park because the owners reached out to us when they had to um, evict a tenant and foreclose on his his home because mm. it was trashed. And they were like, "Do you guys want another <laughs> disaster <laughs> home? Like the last one looks great. You're helping our park." Yeah. Um, but like I said, at that point we'd kind of stepped away, so we referred it to someone else. But sort of building that relationship is the best thing for you when it comes to this because the park is really. Like you can find deals in any park, but if the park is run poorly or if it's kind of super restrictive, hard to sell, it's going to be hard on you. So that's kind of my best advice. And the other cool thing with like targeting mobile homeowners as a sale is instead of buying lists, like if you're doing mailings for single families, it's one address. So like you just need a list of each mobile home park and then it's Mm -hmm. one through 50 or one, just whatever number of units are in there. So your marketing costs are much lower too. I love that. Yeah. That's great, great
0: suggestion. I think it's such a great niche, and you know, we're, I'm in the, we're in the throes of focusing, so I can't get I can't get distracted. You <laughs> know, I'm like ooh, but you know, I think for you know wherever your goals are and your own strategies and your own niche, and saying okay you know, I'm really struggling finding a fix and flip in this neighborhood because it's so competitive. Like we just sometimes have to look a little elsewhere, you know? Exactly.
1: Like they say, you know, you don't always have to hit a home run. You can just get on base. And that's what this was for us. Like, okay, well, we're not going to make a hundred grand on a mobile home, but if we can do 12 a year at 10 grand each, okay. Yeah. (laughs) And you're, and you're, you're you're hedging your bet.
0: You're mitigating your risk. And I think that very, very smart. Um, so now your, your, your time and energy is focused on, on, on being, uh, you know, an accountant, tax strategist and all that good stuff, which is so, so important in this business. I mean, I think we, my husband and I have gone through four or five accountants in the yeah. tenure of us, you know, doing this business for 14 years, almost 15, and not all accountants are created equal, you know this. So having someone that specializes in, in real estate... Is so important. I'll just tell the ladies listening that number one. So, but let's get into some specifics because I know you know we've actually have about three or four questions we're gonna pull from our um, our Facebook community. We had a bunch of women ask a bunch of questions about you know different things. So we're gonna actually pull some neat questions from them and give them a little shout out. But before we go there, just you know, what have you found you know working with investors? You know the common mistakes because there are so many and yeah I mean you can talk to i mean i 'll just give you a sidebar. We had two accounts we talked to recently about a project we had um, we had flipped and what have you. One said we had to pay some sort of tax the other one said that 's ridiculous you know that's not that 's not correct. We ended up paying it because that 's the person who filed the taxes and um, lo and behold, we had to keep paying like quite a bit of money to to to, to a city that we had done this project in. Mm. And then we ran it by Mike, you know, another accountant and that I know, and he said this was all wrong. It was filed incorrectly. Yeah. We'll redo the filing, and then we will get a refund for that money. And that's what yeah. happened. We got like five or $6,000 back. So I just say that because not every accountant looks at things the same way with, with real estate. So what have you found to be common mistakes, things that, you know, the women listening should keep an eye out for as they navigate
1: working with accountants and strategizing? Yeah, there's kind of – there's kind of a few problems so one of the first ones is that a lot of accountants don't know real estate so if they don't if they're not involved in real estate they don't actually understand the deals you're doing they won't understand how to account for it correctly like they're if they literally don't know what you're doing a great example of this is just the other day we've got facebook groups for accountants you know and yeah. this is one of the, the things that people ask the most is real estate stuff it just really confuses people and this woman came in and posted and she was like, I have a client who sold a home, but somehow kept the mortgage in her name. This is a disaster. I've got to fix it for her. Um, I think I need to file it like an installment sale and this and that. And I was like, not a disaster, common transaction. This is a subject to sandwich deal. She kept it in her name, took it and released it out on owner finance. This is totally normal. If you don't even like, if you don't know what that is, you should hand this off. So in her head, something was done wrong. Like it was filed wrong. There's no way you right. can sell a home and keep. So she just didn't even know this was plausible. Like she was so sure she had a huge disaster and she was going to make it the disaster. <laughs> so <laughs> it's really important. I think that your accountant knows real estate. Like I see all the time where wholesale deals are reported like stock sales, basically like they reported like, a, like all kinds of weird stuff. And it's because they just don't realize the context of the transaction. So What I would say is when you're talking to an accountant, don't ask if they work with investors, they'll always say, yes, I worked for (laughs) CPA firms for years. We had investor clients and I know now how kind of poorly we were treating some of the things we were doing. Like it was right. They wouldn't go to jail, but we were losing money. Like we were costing them money. There's so much more kind of strategy and advantageous technique that could have been put into it. And a lot of accountants just don't think of, especially buy and hold investors, they don't think of it like a business. It's very much just like report the rents, deduct the expenses. Here's like you generated a loss, but your income's too high to use it. That sucks. The end, move on. Like they don't then say, well, okay, let's look at other ways we can make use of the loss or let's figure out how to use it. It's just sort of like reporting only. So what I would say is this year, as you're kind of working with your tax professional or, you know, looking to find one things to kind of look out for. These are the things I see mistaken quite a bit, even when returns come to me from other CPAs or from tax firms. The first one is look at your depreciation schedule. So when you own a rental property, you're allowed to depreciate, deduct a portion of the value every year of the building, but not the land. So it is really important to check that because one of the things I see wrong often is that the accountant doesn't back out land. So they're over depreciating it, they're taking too high of a deduction. So your depreciation schedule will always be horizontal. So it should be easy to spot, it's always the sideways page in your tax return. And it should list the date the return, or the date the rental was in service. Um, The amount to be depreciated should be less than your purchase price, right? Because it's not land, it's only the building portion. So if you look at that page and the amount they list there is really, really close to what you paid for the property, ask them about it because there's a good chance they didn't separate out that land value. And even if you have a condo or a townhome, there's a good chance you still have technically an ownership of a percentage of the land. So you need to check that. So always take a peek at that depreciation report. Um, And that's kind of the big, this is super wrong. (laughs) Like that's like a no way about it. That's not like a strategy thing or like a choice that was just wrong. The next part, the strategy part is if you buy a new rental and you renovate it. So typically, any of those costs get added to that cost of your rental, they get added to that basis and depreciated over 27 years. But there's a handful of things we can separate out. So if you do a $100,000 renovation, and your accountant literally just lists $100,000 renovation over 27 years, it's okay, like it's not wrong. But if that included appliances, those could have been separated out and you can get the deduction all at once Mm. or window fixtures or landscaping or carpet. So there's kind of these items that even in a big renovation, we can break out and depreciate over a shorter timeline or potentially just expense them all at once. So you'll get a better deduction instead of one 27th every year. If we can take 20, 30, 40 grand of that 100,000 the first year, well, that's a much better spot to be in. So that's sort of the next level where it's not wrong if they do the whole hundred thousand just as a lump, but they could be losing you money by not digging a little deeper. Yeah. So look for things like that. Just look for if they kind of will push a little further, ask for a little more detail. Um, Other common mistakes that I see regularly, and so you should check these on your returns, on your Schedule E for your rentals, there's a little box that lists the fair rental days. So this is just the amount of days it was available for rent. And what I see from lazy accountants is they'll just put zero for all of them or 365 for all of them. And it's not a problem with your taxes, but when you go to a lender and it says 365, but if you only owned the property for two months, they look at it and it looks like a really badly performing rental because they're looking at numbers and assuming you made this much over a whole year, but actually it was only 60 days and a good lender should dig deeper. But on face value, it's going to, it can potentially mess you up with lending. Mm. So make sure that your days in service or fair rental days are accurate for how long you've owned the property, how many days it was actually available for rent.
0: Great insight. So, yeah. yeah. And I so, think that's something that's under, underrated a lot of ways because your, your tax return isn't just like something you legally have to do. It really is like every time we work with a new bank, a new mm-hmm. lender, send us your tax. I mean, it's, it's everything. It's really what they, they want to know how you're performing and you know, how, um, yeah all those sort of things. And you you forget the importance of
1: that. Absolutely. And that's the thing I get asked a lot. Um, Basically like, oh, I need to show more money for lenders or, but what you can't do, so it's illegal to file a fraudulent tax return. So you can't straight up lie on your tax return, but there's a lot of wiggle room. Like I said, if you had that hundred thousand dollar renovation and we know we could get you a bigger deduction this year, but if you're like, no, I'm going heavy on lending the next few years, I actually want to, I'm willing to pay more tax to show more income like that trade-offs worth it Mm -hmm. to me. So I can qualify for bigger purchases. Okay. Then we'll leave it at the 27 year timeline because that might have more benefit to you, but you need to have a tax professional who kind of looks at that bigger picture and will talk to your lender and kind of make sure that just saving, Like, Oh, it's really easy to be like, Oh, we saved you $6,000 this year, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay. If it keeps you from buying stuff for the next three years, that wasn't worth it. So you've got to look at the bigger picture. So it's great insight. Yep. yeah. The final thing I would say to check on your returns, this was a big kind of confusion point the last couple of years, is there's a new deduction that is called 199A or the QBI deduction. And the reason we got this was because with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, that went through, they gave C corporations a lower tax rate. So to make it kind of fair to everyone else, they said, okay, well, instead of giving you a lower rate, we're going to give you this 20% deduction. And There's a lot of confusion on if rentals qualify, but the long and short of it is that they almost always do. The IRS released a safe harbor because so many people were confused that said you had to like jump through all these hoops, work a certain amount of hours, like wear pink polka dots and sing the Macarena to get it. (laughs) Like they listed out this weird list of specifics and you don't need it. So basically most rentals qualify just based on the tax code. So as long as they rise to the level of a trader business and the wording for that literally just says you have to be regularly involved with the intent to make money. So as long as you're not kind of like a slumlord, like you inherited a property, you ignore it, you never raise rents, you never fix anything. If you've got rentals to profit from them and you're involved somewhat with them, it's not like a totally hands-off deal where you just invested money. They probably qualify. So it only applies on net income, not loss but even if there's loss, you'll want to have the calculation calculate because even if you can't use the 20% this year, it carries forward kind of thing. Mm. So on your tax return, look and ask your tax professional if they marked that you your rentals did qualify for this. Mm. And if your rentals showed net income on page one of your tax return, there should be a line there for the QBI deduction. If you don't have an amount there, ask your tax professional, ask why you didn't get that 20% deduction because that should qualify on your rentals, whether they're in your name, an LLC, in a partnership, it doesn't matter how it's held. Mm. Um, just most rentals are going to qualify for that. And a lot of accountants are missing it.
0: Okay. That's great. That's, I'm, I wrote that down. That's my, my <laughs> um, no, I love that. I love it. And I love the common mistakes you said, and just things to keep in mind. There are so many moving parts. So you need to have somebody who's looking in that strategic way, not just you know, filing for you. So we got a bunch of questions from our community. So we're going to do a, we're going to, I have like 19, I don't think I'm gonna get to the 19 questions, but (laughs) I'm going to go to as many as we can (laughs) here, um, just to, you know, support the women who asked. Yeah. So we're going to start some, like just one, one sentence. And then there's like some that are probably multiple sentences. So, um, so Vivian uh, Yip Keller, thanks for thanks for asking this. But so she said, for W-2 earners whose taxes mm-hmm. exceed the rental losses threshold, what advice do you have for wealth building and paying less taxes?
1: Yeah, so if you're a W-2 earner um, and your adjusted gross income is over $100,000, even if your rentals generate losses, you don't get to use them. Um, normally, passive losses from rentals can only go against passive income unless you're under this income level of $100,000 dollars basically. Um, and then at 150 they go away completely. You can't use any losses, but you don't lose them. So that's the thing to remember is you should still maximize those losses because there's a few ways you can use them in the future. Um, one is add in a source of passive income. So that sounds like obvious, right? But like find a rental that maybe diversifies a little bit. So if you're only investing in the Midwest and you've got these properties that are, um, You know, really good cash flow, you might end up with income on paper instead of a loss even after depreciation. So if all of your rentals kind of cost a little more, they're in higher end areas and you're always having losses, adding in an Airbnb or a rental in a market where there's more cash flow, less appreciation can give you more income that qualifies to use the loss on. Um, Also, like I said, those losses don't go away. You can potentially qualify as a real estate professional. um, If you mostly work in real estate. If you have a W2 job, it's hard to do, but if you focus on real estate 750 hours a year on it, you can potentially qualify and then there's no cap on using your losses. And if you're married, only one of the two people need to qualify. There's actually, I have a super in-depth video um, on this on my YouTube, so you can watch that for the details, but that's the other way. And then finally, when you sell a rental, in the year when you sell, all of your prior losses become available and so do any prior losses on other rentals to the extent of the gain. So what that means is even if you can't use that loss year to year, you can potentially every few years sell and upgrade your properties without doing a 1031. So you don't have to carry over that lower basis. You don't have to jump through the hoops. Um, the, the, I guess my point is just, even if you can't use losses year to year, talk with a tax professional, make sure they kind of will look at this bigger picture and figure out the best way to use them in the future. Because mm. not using them today doesn't mean they can't save you. You know, if you have $100,000 of gain from selling that rental in a few years, we could maybe use them then and pay zero. So you've got to have kind of a plan for them. You don't just want to ignore them and leave them hanging out.
0: <laughs> well, and you bring up a really good point. I think having those strategic conversations with your your tax professional before you know, the, you're really scrambling to get all your things together for your taxes is critical. Like, what does the next year look like? You know, let's start planning. Let's start talking about, let's start strategizing. We have those meetings with our accountant in, in you know, the end of October, just yeah. to start, you know, just to kind of assess it and, and talk about it. And even earlier sometimes, just so we can plan. And I think that that's really helpful for that, your tax professional, because then they'll be able to strategize with you versus, oh no, what are we going to do here? Or, you know, it's like a last minute, Thought. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, well, very cool. That's a good, that's helpful. And I think that was the other question that some of the ladies had asked about was, you know, the threshold of being a real estate professional versus a real estate dealer. Is there a hard and fast um, rule to define those two?
1: So they're kind of different things. So a real estate professional gives you an IRS status where you still have passive income from your rental. So they're not like self-employment tax or anything like that, but now you're not capped on losses. So that designation is great to have because if you have rentals, you can, now it's just a math problem. Like now it's just how many rentals do you need to not pay any taxes, really? If you do two flips a year and you figure out your rentals can generate, you know, $5,000 of losses each on paper, and you know you make a hundred grand a year in flips, okay, great, we need 20 rentals. Like now you just need to scale up to get your business to zero out. Um, And then real estate dealer is kind of a status they apply when you're doing flips, so it's kind of a different ballpark. So this real estate professional really relates more to a benefit from your rentals. Mm. Dealer is something that they'll apply to when you're flipping. And if you do so many a year and it basically prevents you from certain things. Um, but something to keep in mind is even if you do one or two flips, it's still ordinary business income in most cases to the IRS flipping a house is the same as running a bakery. But instead okay. of you know, buying flour, eggs and water and selling cakes, you're buying crummy houses, materials and labor and selling nice ones. So most of the time it is ordinary income. But if you get into that dealer status, then you lose any options of selling on installment sale, you kind of lose some additional benefits. Got it. That you could potentially have. That's very helpful. The
0: um, yeah, and another big conversation we saw in our our, in our community was around um, benefits and drawbacks. To starting an LLC, and, yep. and you know, and I know that it's a it's a more probably a legal question in, in real reality, but you know, I don't know why when they think tax professionals, that is always a question that people have, and you know, what are the pros, the cons? Um, do you have one property in the LLC? Do you have multiple properties in the LLC? Yeah, um, all those sort of things. So, you know, any thoughts, considerations? Obviously, besides the fact that it's probably more of a legal question. Yeah. So. Uh,
1: obviously talk to your attorney and they'll probably tell you something totally different than what I'm about to tell you because we have different <laughs> prerogatives. Like my goal is to save you money. Their goal is to protect you from anything that could possibly happen ever. And there's obviously kind of an inverse relationship there. So what I would say is if you are just, if your only goal is just if they're buy and hold rentals and you just want kind of that legal separation, you just want them um, um, just a little shield between yourself and your business, single family L- or single member LLC. So as long as there's one person only on an LLC, it's ignored for taxes. We still file directly on your personal return. You don't have a separate tax filing. There's no tax benefits either way. You don't gain any deductions by having an LLC. This is a confusion. Some people will think, oh, I incurred all these expenses, but I don't have a business yet because I don't have an LLC. But you have a business. You just don't have an entity. So the LLC doesn't cost you anything deductions wise, like it doesn't put you in a worse place and it doesn't put you in a better place. So it's only purpose is that legal separation. So if that's your goal, just put one person on it. This is the next mistake I see is couples are like, like I get it, you're really excited and you're like, we're doing this together, we're buying rentals, we're both (laughs) gonna be on the LLC, like this is so sweet. But now you have a partnership. (laughs) And that wasn't what most people were trying to accomplish. So unless you're in a community property state, if you add two people to an LLC, it creates a partnership, and that has its own tax filing. So now you're paying for the cost of a second tax return that normally costs more than a personal because there's more to it, um, and that wasn't really your your goal. There's no real benefit to it, but that's just what you kind of created on accident. So just be mindful of that. Um, the only benefit is that partnerships are audited less often than personal returns. So if you're if you get to the point where you have 20 rentals, it might kind of help make you sleep a little better at night knowing they're sort of less likely to be scrutinized, having them in a partnership. But tax wise, again, there's no new deductions, there's no new benefits. And then kind of my third feeling on this is just keep them out of a corporation. (laughs) Two things I see often are, people always hear about S-corp saving you money, and that's true if you're doing flipping or wholesaling, anything that generates self-employment taxes. Mm -hmm. Rentals don't pay any of those taxes already, So an S-corp won't save you any money with those. It's not going to save you anything at all. But now there's a lot of sort of normal transactions that would normally be fine, but if they're done with a corp, create a taxable event. So for example, if you're like, oh, I want to move my rental back into my name to refinance it. If you transfer it to yourself from your S-corp, that can be taxable. So you're paying tax on selling yourself your own house. So there's no real benefit to S-Corps. So just please keep your rentals out of your S-Corps. If you're doing both, like flipping and rentals, have two separate entities. They're taxed differently. We can't maximize either if they're together. And The other thing I will see is management companies. I'm not sure why this kind of came around, but people will create a corporation to manage their own rentals and charge themselves for that. So all you're doing, though, is you're charging the rentals. So we're reducing the taxable income of something that pays less tax to begin with. It doesn't pay self-employment taxes and we're shifting it to a type of income that does pay self-employment tax. You just took $10,000 a year from not having to pay 15.3% tax and put it into a category where now you do have to pay 15.3% tax. Mm. But don't pay yourself to manage your own rentals. (laughs) It just creates more tax for you. Interesting on LLCs and entities those are kind of my big my big 3 try to keep it single member don't accidentally make partnerships don't put rentals in corps or have corps that manage your rentals it's interesting
0: because the you know i think the the S corp thing is an interesting thing cuz we actually transferred our company to an S corp because we were doing flips mm-hmm. and you know we were running them through that that entity we've slowed down flips so mm-hmm. you're giving me thought to to re- reconsider that a little bit, because it you know versus just the rental you know income and the rental properties so that's an interesting point, but back to the the corporation so you know in terms of, of that element you know and, and from a tax perspective um, i don't know what what obviously there are benefits to to doing that and and you know protections and things i'm sure from a legal perspective but I don't know. I'm just curious, like, you know, in your experience, you are then filing that extra tax return. And then, you know, you're saying you're moving one, say that again, you're moving one part over here to now an area that you will have to get taxed. Is that?
1: Yeah. So if, if you have rentals only pretty Mm -hmm. much, and those are just in your personal name or in an LLC or something like that. Right. And then you create an S corp to manage your rentals, you have to charge it a fair fee. Like you have to charge a management fee. So, the idea is to reduce your rental income so that you're paying less tax, but you have to make sure you have a proportionate enough expenses in the corp because if the corp ends up showing any income on paper, that not only pays income tax, but also self-employment tax.
0: Yes. Your
1: rentals don't pay self-employment tax. Okay. So reducing their income to move it over somewhere where it now qualifies for self-employment tax, like you're literally just taking money from... A bucket where it pays less tax and moving it to a bucket where it pays more tax. I got. So you. I don't think that's what people are trying to do, but that's kind of what happens in some cases. So be really cautious with that setup.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great suggestion. It's a great point too. Um, love that. Okay, another question for you, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll get another. You know, that actually kills two birds with one stone because a, a number of folks asked about starting a corp. So I think we got that kind of taken care of.
1: And just before we um, move on, I'll just mention that. So for an S corp, so if you're doing um, flips or wholesaling and an S corp can save you money, the way you get an S corp in most cases is it's an added election to an existing LLC. So I wouldn't tell anyone to start day one with an S corp because then, you know, what if you don't do your first deal this year, now you're paying for a corporate return for no reason. Start with an LLC. And once that income level hits 50 to 70,000, Call your accountant and say, hey, like this is how much I'm making now. Does an S-corp make sense? So don't put the cart before the horse. Like don't become an S-corp until your income makes sense. But as long as that money is going to an LLC, we can always kind of change that LLC to an S-corp. We can convert it later. Yeah. So just start off with the plain LLC and you can always add that on later. I tell people it's like a like getting a, a package on a car Like you're Mm -hmm. driving a Ford Mustang, you bought a Mustang, but then if you call the dealership and you're like, actually have them upgrade mine to the Shelby package, I want heated leather and bigger wheels. Same thing, like you're buying, like you're starting with an LLC and then we can add on this S Corp package to it, so to speak.
0: Yeah. What have you seen to be the benefits of an S Corp?
1: So normally when you do any kind of earned income, like wholesaling or flips, you pay your ordinary income tax and then self-employment tax. Right. And self-employment tax is like when you get your paycheck and there's all those little taxes taken out at the bottom, mm-hmm. FICA, Medicare, Social Security. Mm-hmm. So when you're employed, you pay half and your employer pays half. But when you're self-employed, you are both. <laughs> you are the employee <laughs> and the boss. That's right. You have the, now you have the fun job of paying both halves and it's about 15.3%. percent mm-hmm. So that can be pretty substantial. And so with an S Corp, it has special rules where the IRS basically has said, as long as you pay yourself a reasonable salary and on a regular salary, you'll pay those payroll taxes through payroll. The remainder of your income isn't subject to that self-employment tax. Got it. So if you make hundred grand a year and we figure out a salary is 50, now you're paying half as much self-employment tax basically, because only the salary 50,000 is subject to it. The other 50 doesn't right. pay that tax.
0: Got it. So more fees and more of those transactional income, so to speak. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's kind of, and that's kind of what our transition was when we actually, you know, ended up doing that. Um, So one other question here, and then I want to make sure we're mindful of you sharing how all the great ladies listening can learn more about you and all the great resources you have. Um, I'd like to know more uh, Rebecca um, Steyer. So thanks Rebecca for, for asking this question. Um, I'd like to know more about who and when to 1099 someone And who's actually, uh, who's supposed to actually do that and how? Very simple question, but a really important one.
1: Yeah. And this was kind of a weird one because we touched earlier on that, the new 199A deduction Mm -hmm. on if your rentals are a business. And what it comes down to is for years, I've been doing this anyway. If you have rentals and you're claiming a home office, you're basically claiming you're a business. So Historically, landlords were exempt from having a 1099 people. It was sort of, we just didn't, that wasn't part of it. But now if you're saying you're a business to get this deduction, you need to walk like a duck, quack like a duck if you're going to (laughs) call yourself a duck. So 1099s are quacking like a duck. We need to 1099 anyone you pay more than $600 for the year, unless they are a corporation. So if they're an S-Corp or a C-Corp, they probably don't need one. But this will be kind of a tricky thing for people. And it should be clear, you can you can deduct it either way. It's not like you're going to lose your deductions if you don't 1099 someone, but you're really supposed to and you can face um, kind of some paperwork or potentially a fee if you ignore it. So it's important that when you're hiring kind of that small contractor or handyman to try to get them to fill out a W-4 at the beginning so that you have that information from them to fill out a 1099, because what we've run into this year is now a lot of the landlords are like, oh, I'm trying to claim this deduction. So I need to 1099 people. My contractors won't give me their EIN number. They yeah. It's like, yeah, they're probably not reporting their income, but like, yeah, but that doesn't make you not responsible for doing your part. So you need to really show that you tried. And so the more you can gather that information at the beginning of a job and get them to fill out that form. So come tax time, you can do it. Um, do that. And then in terms of how to do it, so if you have a bookkeeper, they'll do it for you. Um, I don't do it at my firm because I do just tax. And so we're not really in the QuickBooks day to day. So if you have someone managing QuickBooks for you, they would be tracking your contractors who Mm -hmm. needs to get 1099 anyway. But there's also a bunch of really easy websites. Um, And I'm totally spacing offhand, but I think it's called file 1099.com. But there's basically websites now where it's totally e-filed for you. You don't have to go buy forms and print them on the 1099s and split up the copies and send (laughs) one to the IRS and send one to your, um, you can do it online. Um, e-file 1099 is another one, but they basically, they'll charge like two to $3 a form. They file it for you and then it's done. That's great. So that's the easiest way to do it. That's what most of my clients do just because it's it's not worth paying. It's a really easy thing to do yourself and save yeah. money on and keep track of.
0: Yeah, and the key is to get it at the beginning.
1: <laughs> yeah, because you can yeah. have. Cause a they'll contractor. fight you on it later. <laughs> yeah, I
0: mean, when we've had yeah. that happen, where contractors walk and yeah. things end poorly, you know, now they're going to give you their EIN number. Like, no, they're not no. going to return your phone call. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> um natalie this has been awesome i could probably keep going with questions so i want to be mindful of all your time and great great you know expertise here where can the ladies listening uh our podcast learn more about you and all the wonderful resources you have
1: yeah the best starting point is my website it's just colotax.com k-o-l-o-t-a-x um on there you'll find links to my youtube channel i've got resources on there free downloads Um, there's also a scheduler on there. So if you're interested in talking and seeing if you'd like to work together, you can set up a free client consultation and we'll look at those prior returns for you, see if there's anything missed or what we can do better going forward. And we'll send you over all that feedback and a price that's custom to your situation. So, um, that's kind of the best way to find me. I'm also on Facebook at, um, I think it is real estate tax strategist on Facebook.
0: Awesome. Perfect. And we'll put all that in the show notes for one listening. Perfect. So our, our fabulous three questions. Andressa always asks these and I, I'm so <laughs> glad. I'm so, I was freaking out because I'm like, do I even have them written down? I should know them <laughs> after a hundred episodes, but I do have them written down. So I'm going to ask them. Um, most, transfer, most transformational book you've ever read, Natalie?
1: Oh, that is a hard one. Um, probably it's called Go for No. And it's kind of a sales book. And so a lot of people that haven't read it, but it is basically, it shifts your mindset so that instead of getting discouraged as you're trying to close deals or trying to do a sale, if you know that one in every 25 leads to a closing for each, no, you get excited. Like, you know, now you're one 25th closer to getting yeah. that deal. So it's really, for me, it was kind of a good book of shifting how I changed about like my mindset about that. Otherwise by the 10th you know, person yelling at you on the phone, you're pretty discouraged. But if you know that that's just like you're closer and that's factual, like you're bound to get a deal if you keep grinding at it. So changing your mindset to really go for those no's and be excited when you get them. And the flip side is one of the key points of that book is a lot of people quit when they reach their goal. If your goal was to sell five suits this month and you sell five on the second day of the month, you kind of slack off the rest of the month. Well, if your goal is a hundred no's, and you get your five yeses the first two days, you're going to keep going. You don't have your no's yet. So it really kind of pushes you to keep going beyond your comfort zone. I love that. I love that title, Go for No. I have to- Go for No. That <laughs> um, so what is the
0: most powerful routine you do uh, to create a financially free and balanced life? And whatever balance means to you.
1: Yeah, I would say I do kind of a, a multi-part journal. I do like a business personal combination journal And for me, it started as my business plan, like it was a pretty notebook I bought when I was thinking of how to do this firm. And that was where I sort of wrote out my draft of my business plan. But now it's become kind of an ever-evolving business plan. So all of my right side pages are all the business goals for the month, for the year, and kind of I track it on that side. And then the left side is sort of the personal of what's going on. Because I think if you don't look at both kind of side by side, it's real easy to end up skewed. So that's what's just worked well for me, just being able to see them together and kind of see those goals in one place. So I can really say, you know, oh, it's great to set a big business goal, but I want to travel more this summer. So maybe yeah. I'll pull that back and focus on me time. So that's that. been really helpful for me. I love that.
0: The uh, and last question, which women famous or not has inspired you the most?
1: Oh, gosh, that is a hard one. Famous or not, who has inspired me the most? Is it terrible that I don't have someone offhand? I can't, like now I'm just I'm There's just no totally judgment facing. over here, no judgment. Oh. Yeah, it's that would be a hard one. There's just, there's so many options for different reasons, I guess. Um, gosh, I don't know, lately I would say, Someone who's inspired me not famous is there is a local wholesaler here and everyone kind of knew her She for years was sort of made fun of because she didn't know what she was doing mm. right? Like She was sort of the person that everyone was like, oh she's calling again, but after years of figuring it out like she got it and now she has like surpassed the dudes here by like she did her first six-digit month in January and Like I got to listen to her speak at a real estate meeting a couple months ago and listening to her and she's just like this country girl from North Carolina. And she talked about her first deals and how everyone she called who was like respected locally, who was like the wholesaler to talk to, told her it wasn't a deal. It would never work. And she just kept at it. She was like, well, if no one else is trying, I'll just keep working with the seller. Eventually they'll, you know, like if everyone else has decided this already wouldn't work. And she eventually closed the deal and it took like seven months, but she made a huge span of income on that deal. And so listening to her was really inspiring cause it was great seeing someone so transparent being like, didn't know what I was doing for years. Everyone made fun of me, like totally went around bothering everyone and bugging people for information, but now she's killing it. Like she just didn't let it bother her and kept grinding at it. Yeah. And now Not she's one up. of the better wholesalers in Charlotte. Yep. Yeah. And that's the key,
0: right? You cannot give up. I love that. I'd love to have have her on our podcast. Sounds like somebody will interview. Yeah, absolutely. She's awesome. (laughs) Um, Well, Natalie, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on our show and sharing all your great insight with the uh, women listening. Such an important topic and so much much detail, not just the, I love the mobile home conversation, but also the tax (laughs) and that strategy. So thank you so much and just appreciate you being on here.
1: Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to receive updates on our next interviews, go to our website,
0: therealestateinvestor.com. There, you can subscribe to our show, become part of our investor community, and get updates on upcoming episodes.